All right. Well, if you guys will turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 with me, we're um, week three into a uh, gospel-centered family series that'll probably go about 14 weeks up through uh, July. And, um, and you know, it's, it's not arbitrary or random that we're doing this series, but we've been walking through Ephesians, and as we've gotten to chapter 5, uh, we just really want to take some good time and, uh, and invest in, you know, what the Word says about uh, the family, and especially as Paul handles it so well in Ephesians 5, uh, in light of the gospel. And so we've been laying a foundation uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 2 the last two weeks, and that is uh, that uh, marriage and family is God's design and for God's glory. So at its foundation, it is uh, God's doing, and he's, he's in it. He's creator of marriage and family. And then uh, at its ultimate, it is for God's glory. And so uh, as we get into um, 1 Samuel, we're just going to kind of overview what the story was of um, Hannah and uh, Samuel's birth uh, through his mother uh, Hannah and her prayer and fasting. But um, the, the idea that we want to look at today is that um, God's kingdom is not subservient to the family. God's kingdom is not submissive to the family. God's kingdom is not compliant to the family. And so family exists for God's glory, not for its own self-fulfillment. And so we're going to see this in 1 Samuel 1, just as an example that, and you'll forgive me as I scan, and as you have it open, you can scan with me, but we see at the end of verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1 that there was a man named Elkanah, and verse 2 tells us that he was a, a, a polygamist, you know, he had two wives, and, uh, and the name of one was Hannah, and as you scan the next few verses, um, you see verse 4 and 5 and 6 that the other wife, Penaniah, would often taunt the wife, Hannah, because she was barren and she had no children. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of unhealthy things in having multiple wives, uh, many jealousies that you see in the scriptures. And, uh, and one of the things is that oftentimes there's, there's the one is barren and one is not. And so there's just the feeling of, of shame and guilt and, and lacking. And so, um, but you see that Elkanah loved Hannah and it says this there um, in verse five. And so he would give her like a double portion. And, um, and verse six tells us that the Lord had actually, at the end of verse six, closed Hannah's womb. Uh, and so uh, every year, three times a year, Elkanah, the, the dad, the man, the father, uh, he would take his wives and his family and he would go to Shiloh to the tabernacle and he would worship. Um, and, and yet just as the time would happen, the provocation from one wife towards Hannah would just be severe and Hannah would just be discouraged and depressed and she wouldn't eat. And verse eight, you know, tells us Elkanah said, you know, why aren't you eating and why are you weeping all the time? And he asked this classic husband to a suffering wife question of, am I not better to you than 10 sons? You know, and it's like, you're missing the issue, you know, and, uh, Total sensitive uh, husband there. And, uh, 
And then we see that, you know, she ends up moving towards prayer and fasting and even just is so pouring her heart out before the Lord that she prays these heart prayers where just her lips are moving there at the tabernacle. And the priest looks and says, you know, are you drunk or something talking to yourself? And, and she says, no, I'm, I'm praying, I'm crying out uh, for a son that he would serve the Lord all the days of his life. And, and uh, Eli, the priest said, you know, well, you know, he's going to give it, th- this son to you within the year. And we see that happens. And there's this language in the text of 1 Samuel chapter 1 uh, that like in verse uh, 11, you know, she's crying out for a male child for the purpose of giving him to the Lord all the days of his life. And then as you consider uh, down farther in verse 22, when she has the son, She's very intentional about the timing of weaning this son because when she actually takes him for the first time to the tabernacle, look at the end of verse 22. Uh, we'll wait until the child is weaned. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And then we finally see at the end of the chapter Uh, she brings this child, his name is Samuel, before the priest and said, this is the child that you said would come. And verse 27 says, this child, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, and I love this verse. This is the verse of my heart when we dedicate children. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord So they worshiped the Lord there. And so something that was just on my heart moving into this study is, you know, thinking of three barren women and and hit the little bit of the Mother's Day tone here. You know, um, this is just a little bit of like a word to the moms in the midst of a family series. But check out these barren women that we see in the scriptures. You have a, a Sarah who had become an old woman and was barren. And when the promise came that they would have children, Abraham and Sarah. Um, You see, first of all, the purpose of the children wasn't ultimately for Abram or Sarah's self-fulfillment. But you notice, and we, I don't even need to turn there. We got it, we got it seared into our heart, the promise of the Lord to Abram that through you and your seed, this son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we see that the, that the ultimate thing of God's promise to Abram and barren Sarah was not just a child for their own building up their progeny, but it was so that the whole world would be blessed by, and as you know, the whole context, by knowing Jesus is really what's going on there. Uh, That family to a barren family was going to be a blessing to them, but it wasn't going to end there. It was going to go to the whole world. We look here at Hannah, barren and depressed and, and grieved, overwhelmed with grief. And as she's crying out for a son, and she's so specific in her prayer, she wants a male son. And, and she wants this son to be male so that he can serve in the tabernacle all the days of his life. So much so that when she finally gets her dream, you know, I was reading one man, he said, you know, this, this cry of Hannah is the heartfelt cry of every Hebrew mother. You know, she wanted a child. And, and as she did so, she had this prayer with a purpose. 
so that he would be lent to the Lord. My son is lent to the Lord. And it says when she gave him to the Lord, they worshiped the Lord there. We see this in, in the barren woman Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. Is the angel Gabriel who appears before God tells the priest Zechariah that you will have a child. You're an old man and your wife is barren, but you will have a child. So much is such a radical thing that he is going to be moving forward in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he's going to have a messianic ministry and ushering in the anointed one. And as was both the case with Sarah and Elizabeth, these barren women, when they heard the promise of God, they were so wrapped up in it that they didn't even believe the Lord. Something that is a problem so often when we're so wrapped up in, uh, in our own parochial, self-centered affairs. And so kind of having that be an example moving on to what I may consider one of the only topical teachings you'll ever hear me do, a professor, Walt Kaiser, said, you're allowed to preach one topical sermon a year as long as you repent immediately thereafter. So, uh, you, know, always, you know, not that topics are wrong. We always want the word to be the scaffolding from which we build it. And, you know, you don't have to be hiding under a rock or you must be hiding under a rock if you don't notice there's enough circulating, circulating in the media today that is discouraging to Christians about the future of marriage and family. There was a recent Atlantic article called All the Single Ladies, where Kate Bullock suggested that we stop thinking about traditional marriage as society's highest ideal because divorce is now the new normal. Some of you might remember in the 1980s and the 1990s, the term turnkey kids and turnkey kids was meant to represent a sad reality of children going from home to home or turning their own key and never being around their parents. But it's become a regular lifestyle today for our children and mainly because of the fragmentation of the home and family and marriage. Cultural developments over the last 30, 40 years have led Christians to become more family-centered both for our own sake and for our neighbor's sake. Promise keepers encourages men to love their wives. John Piper and Wayne Grudem asked, uh, edited a scholarly and pastoral book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, where they urged and encouraged a complementarian understanding of the home and of the local church. All of this has just been moving us forward to even having a ministry called the uh, focus on the family and, uh, and focusing on the family. Not a bad thing, but we don't want the, the focus to be so on the family that we forget the larger context of the family. I, we would endeavor in this series to focus on the family in the light of the gospel. And so, you know, we, we've got these swings of the pendulum in our social and co cultural norms of marriage and family that we can often swing too far one way to try to correct the others. And with that, sometimes we adopt social norms and cultural norms, and we begin to adopt worldly methods and worldly visions of family and how to have successful families, and even how the church teaches and equips families to be um, healthy. One professor and pastor friend of ours 
Art Azurdia told about how when he had taken over a church and become the lead pastor, uh, he began going to the church's Sunday school that for the last year had done exclusive teachings on family life. And he said three things were obvious among the people that went to this Sunday school class on family. He said, first of all, most of these couples were not involved in the life of the church in any way, shape, or form. You know, sometimes that can be a danger of Sunday school classes or even home groups. They can become churches within churches. But uh, he wrote that these individuals didn't even attend church, but they would just go to Sunday school to learn how to be a better family, and then they would go home immediately afterward. The second thing he noticed and observed was that this uh, class possessed no evangelical burden whatsoever. The third thing was that they possessed no appetite for any of the great truths of God that didn't directly intersect with concerns of the family. Now, as we teach this today, we do declare that the family is good and an important thing. We don't want to get away from that. But we don't want to be self-focused on self-affairs and miss the greater vision and mission of the family. Dr. Schaefer said, never forget that a healthy Christian family, just like a healthy Christian church, has been designed to exist for a goal outside itself. So ask that about your family right now. What does our family exist for? Is it just family? Is it just our kids or just our wife? The Sunday school that Art spoke of was a well-meaning group of people who were suffering from a form of myopia, which is basically where the distant object of our chief end will appear blurred. John Stott wrote when speaking about the church, and I would apply it to the family, no self-centered, self-contained church, or rather self-centered, self-contained family in this case, absorbed in in its own parochial affairs, can claim to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. So a Spirit-filled family is also a missionary family. We don't want to lose the great aim where we create such an idol out of our family that fills our heart, that there's no room for the truth of God's promise. Even if we were to hear it from an angel today, like Gabriel who appears before the throne of God. Some of us have such an idol built up from the American dream of what family is supposed to look like that maybe even today your ears are clogged and your eyes are, are, are blind. We just pray that the Spirit of God would open hearts and eyes and ears. That we would not be so focused on the family. That we would fail to recognize the family in its more broad and biblical and theological context. There's two great errors that we need to discern. It's a trap that society falls into when it comes to the family. The first trap is that family, uh, rather society can value personal independence and autonomy to such a great level 
that they, an individual, would never want to have a family because a wife or a husband and then kids would totally disrupt my living for myself mentality. Family just screws that up. So you've got that end of things that is an error that our society falls into. And then kind of the the main opposite of that is that family becomes everything. Family becomes the most important thing. Both are forms of idolatry. Both fall out of God's best and God's design that would bring God glory. Sometimes on this end, we would make that family an idol, something that fundamentally defines us. We would regard, if we were on this end, anyone who doesn't have a spouse or doesn't have children, someone who is somewhat subhuman. What's wrong with you? And so kind of in wanting to address the disintegration of the family, you know, and there's all kinds of just wrong ways. The pendu- I'm, I'm finding the pendulum is now even swinging this way, if it can do that. Uh, even in my, own, in my own family, in my large family, because marriages have failed so much that now we're just not going to get married and we're just going to live together in some sort of a common law marriage or something like that with no covenant before the Lord or others. And so we're going to swing this way saying we know better than God and, and just, you know, marriage just hasn't worked. God had it wrong. There's a flaw in our creator's design. And so it's not that we're not going to have a family and it's not that we're going to have too much family. It's that we're going to have family our way by our design. And so it's a, it's a horizontal idolatry or whatever this would be. Z-axis. I'm not good at math. Or sports. The pendulum has swung so far in these other directions, and especially I think we see it a lot in the Christian church where all of life, all of church, all of Christianity, it becomes subservient to the family. Jesus submits to my home and my dream. Or so much so that if you don't belong to a family, at the end of the day, something is wrong with you. And the American church has begun to sell itself on this subject. This is a family church. This is a church for families. What's more exclusive than the family? Now, God does place importance upon the family, but never as an end in itself, only as a wonderful means to a far greater end. And hopefully by now, you know what that end is. You could bet your money that this is the dilemma we have as Christians, the failure to think as our families as conduits to a greater end, rather we've created cul-de-sacs within our families where it ends here. Don't mess this up. There's an old saying, us for no more, shut the door. And in 1847, J.W. Alexander, an American Presbyterian minister in the early 1800s, he said, the Christian family exists not for itself. The Christian family was never to exist for itself. It was to exist for a purpose outside of itself. And you know, as we go through the scriptures, we see how the gospel 
lovingly confronts. It confronts idolatry. And it very lovingly brings the remedy through repentance as the good news is shown that God has something so much better that he has bought and paid for through the blood of the cross. And so we want that wonderful good news to confront and correct our worldview that has said for the last decades for some of us that Jesus and his kingdom bows down to me and my dream and my home life. Don't even touch this, Lord. Kind of weird to say it that way, isn't it? (laughs) What defines the dignity and the high worth of our families? We've studied the last two weeks that the first thing is that it's a sovereign creation of the Lord God. That marriage doesn't start with man and it doesn't start with Woman, it starts with, in the beginning, God. Because God designed it. That gives it incredible worth. This is no human invention. Secondly, as we studied last week, it exists for God and for his glory, not for our own self-fulfillment. That kind of continues into this week. That gives it high value and high worth. At a Christian's couples conference, One preacher said, brothers and sisters, we have a new idol in the church of Jesus Christ. We are in grave danger of becoming Protestant moralists worshiping at the shrine of the family. That takes great courage to say what many in our day refuse to say. That the family was never designed to be an end in of itself. That we weren't just created to just become good people with polished manners and morals that just kind of hang out together. But that we were to be transformed from darkness to light by the power of the blood of the cross and by the spirit of God. And then he sets a fire in our soul and in our family so that we want to tell the whole world about this wonderful truth. This preacher went on to quote this text from 1 Corinthians 7, 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. You ever read that scripture before? Paul tells us, he starts off with, look at the days that we're living in. And as we have a church have a theology of missions and world missions and unreached people groups and and the plan of God for us as a local church to tell the world of Jesus. As we have this wonderful vision and mission because of this, and this is the day we're living in, the time is so short that from now on, he said it back 2,000 years ago, I'm saying it now, from now on, we who have wives should live as though we have none. That's in the Bible? Who would read that verse? I failed to even notice it. What it does is it confronts the idolatry of what many of us have made of our wives. This verse is absent and probably even against most of the books that you could go down and buy at Family Christian Store on marriage and family. Who's going to put that in a book about marriage and family? You who have wives should live as though you have none. Now, 
time to bring some clarity because some of you are sweating and getting nervous. Why did he even quote that verse? Not free love, I'm just gonna tell you that. Paul and nobody else are saying that we should neglect family responsibilities. He's not going there, don't think I'm going there, and don't you go there. What he's saying is, don't live your Christian life as though your wife is all there is, or as though your kids are all there is, as though our experiences in the family and our relationships that we cultivate are the ultimate end. All of our relationships should be lived out with this knowledge that the world and all of its forms are passing away. Now, we need to hear this principle even though very often it could be exploited. Donald Blesch wrote, the proof of Christian marriage is the willingness of the two partners to sacrifice the marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean we just neglect our marriage or that we divorce or anything, but it's that we would say, okay, this is important. This is high. This has dignity and value, but it's for this. And so in what ways do we need to experience some squeeze so that the perishing world doesn't experience the pinch of hell for all eternity. And the creator worthy of their praise isn't robbed of his glory. In what ways can we as a home experience the squeeze so that the world doesn't experience the pinch? Paul was not promoting that in the name of the ministry, the neglect and the abandonment of family responsibilities he wouldn't go there. I'm not going there. But he says in his 1 Corinthians 7 passage that the predominant occupation of our lives and of our families and that everything else, including the advancement of the kingdom of God, should not bow down to our home life. Let's look at Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Peter answers and says, see, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says something that's like, man, if you didn't know who was saying it, you'd be like, sinner, repent. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, Ah, brothers and sisters. Or father or mother. Ah, father or mother. Or wife. Urch. Or children. Urch. Or lands. Some of you are like, Urch. you know, okay. For my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit life. But if we didn't know that that was Jesus who said this, they would totally say that is some sort of sinful, radical saying. It's because the image we have in our mind of the family doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from reading the whole context of the Word of God. We get our image from family and what it's to be from Little House on the Prairie and Leave it to Beaver and Parenthood or whatever else. 
but we certainly don't get it from the Word of God. There is no open-handedness with our families before the kingdom of God. We see that in our culture. Our hearts are idol-making factories that take good, wonderful gifts from God and make them ultimate in our lives, thereby replacing God in our affections. Tim Keller said, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Is anything coming to your mind right now? Hope the Holy Spirit is bringing those things up. How can you identify these idols? How can you determine if you're worshiping a counterfeit God? Keller goes on to say, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It takes something that God is giving us as a blessing, something that we give him glory and honor for and that we use as, as wonderful tools that reflect his gospel. We show the world and we go like this to it. Nobody else. Nothing for me. You know, and you know, there's plenty of illustrations out there, whether it's, you know, Tommy Boy's buddy ripping the, 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 the roll apart or whether it's, you know, my precious Schmeagel on Lord of the Rings. or You know, it's just like, yeah, we just destroy something precious and good that God has given. Have you ever felt that way about your wife, husbands? Just love her so much and she's so hot and I just got to be around her, you know? And oh my gosh, you know, she just cooks so good and she completes me, you know? And, all, and, and it's like, oh, if anything ever happened to her, I would just end it all because I can't survive without her. And, and we understand kind of where that comes, you know, we understand you love your wife, awesome. But when she's become God and God has no power, there's a problem. We've got these passages in the scripture that say that the gospel will even bring separation from family. Have you ever read them? Like Luke 14, 26, it's where we are in core group right now. So we're very prayerful as we move forward in core group notes. Uh, we're moving into these passages um, regarding, you know, the cost of discipleship, where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Do you pass over that verse by chance? Or what about later on in the chapter, verse 33? Anyone, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Now, a good exegesis of the text will tell you he's not talking about disdaining your family of course he teaches a love of wife and children. But you can go back to the, to the scriptures where, you know, the Lord loved Jacob and hated Esau. And you see that the word love, or rather hate, it doesn't always mean disdain. It can mean to love less. If you don't love your children and your wife and your lands and your possessions less than you love the living God, 
there's an idol. Anyone who wants to be a disciple of the, of the Lord Jesus has to love these things less than they love the Lord. Matthew 10, 34 through 39, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will become those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So very sobering scriptures about the right place of love and relationship and family in context to the lordship of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ, the advancement of the kingdom. And that at the end of the day, if you have to make a choice between family or Jesus, who do you pick? Lands or Jesus, who do you pick? Luxury or Jesus, who do you pick? Sports or Jesus, who do you pick? Stephen Um wrote in an article, Discipleship in the Idols of Family and Culture. He wrote, what Jesus is calling us to is ultimate allegiance. He is essentially saying, to be my disciple, you must give me preeminence over and sometimes against all other relationships. In other words, our lives should be so submitted to Christ that when we put our allegiance to him side by side with other allegiances, the difference is so great that it could be described in the black and white terminology of love and hate. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, you find James and John in a boat with their father mending their fishing nets. And Jesus says, follow me. And immediately they left their boat and followed him. Now, in our Western culture, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Our kids kind of grow up and they go and they leave the family business and they go and they have that freedom to just be what you want. And, you know, it doesn't depend upon mom or dad. I mean, some of you have been raised in a way that it kind of, Barney, come on, you know, <laughs> triangle outfit. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, certainly not. But to the Eastern culture where it's like, we stick together as a family. This is the family business. Great grandpappy mended nets and fished here on the sea of Galilee and my great grandkids will. And this is how it is. And when Jesus just walks by and says, follow me, Boom! Immediately they dropped their nets. They saw who he was. And they saw he is worth the abandonment of all of this. Um goes on to say, while society itself, our local communities, and even our families may be demanding that we give our primary devotion to them, the call to discipleship always includes a drastic reordering of that which is most precious to us. Have you done that in your discipleship and following Jesus? Reordered what is most precious to you? Prioritized? Um goes on to say, and it may sometimes include a departure from those things that refuse to come under the rule of our new master. Have you departed 
from some things. Anyone ever read the Pilgrim's Progress? The Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim, he, he has this burden on his back and he's reading the book of life. As he reads the book, he realizes he's got the burden on his back. And he finds that if he would go to the, to the celestial city, that he will find freedom. And, and as he goes to the Savior, he will find a, a release from that burden. But that to stay in his present place, he will find condemnation and judgment. And so he comes home just having been shown life from the book of life. And he tells his family about it. And his family begins to mock him. You guys remember that story? You can read it. It's free online. You can, well, anything's free online, but I think it's legitimately free online. Uh, you can, I think, you can, you can read about how he, his family begin to mock him and laugh at him and say, you need to go get some sleep. You're crazy. The wife, the kids, they laugh at him. And he comes to realize, I have got to go find relief from this burden on my back. I have got to go find life. And as he begins to take the book and go out of the house and go toward the celestial city, his wife and his kids follow him out the door and they begin to scream after him to come back. Dad, come back home. And he covers up his ears and he cries out, life, life, I choose life. And sometimes there needs to be that drastic reordering or even departure from the things that stop us from living for the kingdom of God. The call to discipleship is a fundamental redirection of our human existence. There is a reorientation. There is an all-embracing turnaround of our lives so that our affections can be placed primarily on God. Scripture shows us that in the words of Garth Brooks, I always like to say, blood is thicker than water, but love is thicker than blood. There's something about the gospel that tells us there's something deeper than the ties of blood. It's the love of Jesus. What about Mark 3.31? Here's a Mother's Day passage. You're like, this is the weirdest Mother's Day passage I've ever heard. Like, this sermon fell off the rails a long time ago and like, you know, putting goosebumps on my back for Mother's Day. I know, I failed that. And this next verse isn't going to help either. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll totally redeem it in the end. I got you flowers. Okay, Mark 3.31. Then his brothers and his mother came calling him and a multitude was sitting around and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Man, even in our culture, that's like, so get up off your duff and go to them. It's mom. It's, it's your brothers. Blood. There's a tie. Like it's the most high, right? Nothing more important than family. Get out there, Jesus. And then our Lord busts out this saying that your mom wants on her Mother's Day card today. In the words of Jesus, who are my mothers or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat in him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Do you see the reorientation? Did Jesus love mom? Absolutely. Did he hang there at the cross in one of his last 
sayings was, John, behold your mother. She's your mom now. Take, Take care of her. He loved his mom, but he recognized that idolatry there that mother and brothers take precedence over fellowship with the family of God. And do you think that's at all the case in the American families today on Mother's Day? Think anybody stayed home today like, it's breakfast in bed day, we live for mom. Not, it's the Lord's day and the Lord gave us mom and praise God for mom. Let's go fellowship with the saints and worship God and thank him for our moms and hear some weird Mother's Day sermon about ditch him to the curb or something. I don't know, that was not the message. But you know what? The Bible tells us and experience confirms it. Even within this church. That the minute you touch this. I'm out of here. This is real. The minute you begin to tell me that if I desire to save my life, I will lose it. But if I am open-handed with my life and say, it's the Lord's anyway, then I'll really save it. You have lost your mind. You think I'm going to be a part of that? The Bible tells us that that will happen. And our experience has confirmed it. Because the mission of God is a threat to family time. Biblically, it is a threat to family time. And within the church today, it's considered an enemy to be avoided. The value of the Lord's day becomes submissive to family day or Mother's Day, or family time. Do you, understand, do you see that? Lord, you bow down to me today. Activities of the church are neglected. I would say activities of the church that are imperative in the scripture are neglected for the pursuit of family investment. Athletics, education, skills, Family kingdom building. And I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit touch the buttons that he wants to touch and be specific with you today. Christians become selfish and self-consumed. The body of Christ, the church, and its mission is a threat. Parents begin to think that their kids exist for their own satisfaction. And they even begin to live vicariously through their children. I could never hit a home run, but we are going to make sure that you do. I hurt my shoulder in the homecoming game and didn't get to play, but boy, you will play for me. It's the Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite guy, you know? (laughs) Do you ever wish you could build a time machine and just go back? What are you talking about? Okay. (laughs) Finally, you guys are loosening up. Got hot there for a while. Parents fear gospel imperative ministries 
like foster care and adoption for fear that their perfect family will be threatened. What is pure and undefiled religion? Excuse me? Taking care of the kids that don't have a family. And as we have pursued adoption and had door after door shut, we still are open to it with four kids and people are like, you crazy. We are a little crazy. But even before then, as we were attempting to adopt, family members would tell us, you don't want to do that. It will ruin your family. It might ruin your American idealistic view of your family, which I will submit is not a biblical, God-designed, gospel-centered view of family. We have a ministry in our church called Safe Families. And there are kids in this community and in this county that need some love. Let's love them. We cried out through fasting and prayer that the Lord would just begin to open up and give us vision for our local ministries. And I think that is one of the most tangible ways that we can ornament the gospel in this society, even before the DHSs of this world who just see it all go wrong. And we can come in with life and the gospel and say, here we are, we're the body of Christ. We'll take them in. Let's go buy some 15 passenger vans, huh? Let's squeeze those kids in there. Let's love on them. This friend that visited us this week, uh, uh, they have two, they have a, a set of twins that over the last year and year and a half have joined their family and they're moving on towards permanent adoption. It's been through foster care with DHS. It's been horrible in many ways and amazing in so many others. And to sit there with them and to talk about how this is the gospel demonstrated to the world. That we who were orphans and abandoned and down in the miry pit with zero hope. The, the kids that they had, had, they were on their 11th home at six years old by the time they came to them. To where every phone call and every time the phone ring, they were just waiting to be, they were just listening and they'd come and move their toys a little closer and just hear about, are you giving me up? Is that my alarm that it's time to shut up? Okay, yeah, it is. It is time to shut up. Okay. For gospel imperative ministries, you guys, it's okay to open the door up in our homes and to trust Jesus. That maybe our kids are going to be exposed to stuff that's just the real world. And it'll provide teachable moments for this is what sin does. And this is why it's so bad. And this is why the God-man had to come and be slaughtered on a Roman cross. This is why. But you know what? He did that to redeem this and to bring life and love and light, not only to these kids, but to the whole entire world. And that might be just a little bit better than what we've had going on. Brings God so much glory. Worship team, come on up. And all God's people will say, woohoo. <laughs> and I'll, I'll close with Azurdia and Bloch. Azurdia says, marriage feeds off of experience outside of marriage. It cannot stand alone. 
It needs the network of more important commitments to make the commitment of exclusive lifelong fidelity work. A healthy marriage, healthy family, needs something outside of itself to work. Bloch wrote, Both husbands and wife are servants of Christ, and it is to him and not each other that they must look to the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. We should not marry for love alone, but for the sake of kingdom service. At the same time, we should marry with love. Let me close with a a poem. John Piper wrote his son on, on the son's wedding day. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her at your earthly best. Beyond this, venture not, lest your love become a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall. As in humility before, a likeness of your God, adore. Above all else, best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace. And that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow Beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade. For being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. And I love this. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless by loving her more, by loving her less. Let's stand together. And Lord, as we just close in song, what we would call worship and praise, We know worship is not just something we do on Sundays. But Lord, it is something we do whether we're eating or drinking or breathing or thinking. No matter what it is, God, we were built and made and designed to glorify you. And that is nonetheless true when we are by ourselves, behind closed doors, or here in the sanctuary or around the dinner table, or mowing the lawn with our kids in the yard, or whatever, Lord, we would give you, we were created to bring glory and worship to you. And so let this song of worship be just the reordering and the prioritizing of wonderful things and people and loved ones, wonderful relationships, but that they would be ordered to be subservient to you. We put you on your rightful throne today. 
Let's sing together.